This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Welcome to uh, this evening's edition of Navarra Live. This doesn't look like the Navarra Media Studio because it isn't. Uh, We had a very unfortunate confluence of events this evening, it being both uh, strike day with RMT and ASLEF, solidarity to both unions and also, of course, people being on their August holidays. So as a one-off, you have me hosting this evening's show. Michael Walker is very fortunate to be on an island holiday, I believe. And I have the great pleasure of being joined by Mike Bancole this evening. How are we? Yeah, not too bad. It's uh, good to be back in action. The B team is back in action. So looking forward to appearing on the show with you today, Aaron. Should be good fun. The B team, I did really enjoy last time, I have to say. Um, and you're looking sharp. That new background in the uh, Navarro Media Studio is really good for people down the line. On tonight's show, we'll be talking about the government's scandal, frankly, with regards to a particular kind of concrete in schools and how many it's affecting. Many are presently closed. How long will that go on for? And will the government disclose details of which schools are affected? Theresa May says sorry for her past misdemeanors. And a few stories in regard to Labour. One about a paedophile and his relationship, non, uh, non-amorous, I should say, the friendship or a colleagueship with a now suspended Labour mayor. And of course, an ongoing investigation with regards to the people that leaked the Labour leaks documents, which we reported on uh, a few years ago. That made great weather at the time. Before we go any further, as I've already said, Solidarity to our empty and has left workers on strike today. I can't go to work because of you guys. I don't care. It's great. It's very important that we have a well-resourced, well-staffed, well-run train system in this country. Also, on a on a similar note, today is the last day of the public consultation with regards to ticket office closures. The government plans to shut in in concert, of course, with private rail operators. It plans to shut almost a thousand ticket offices around the country. As I've said, today is the last opportunity to get involved in that consultation. First story. Do you remember the Labour leaks story? We broke that here on Navarra Media. It was a pretty extraordinary scandal. It detailed a great deal of racism and misogyny in the upper ranks of the Labour Party management, including the most senior management, those people around Ian McNichol, the then party general secretary. They rude the fact that Labour had forced a hung parliament in 2017. Remember that? It was hugely embarrassing when those WhatsApps were leaked and reported on by us here at Navarra Media. And of course, at the time, the likes of Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner said, this is outrageous. We have to do something about it. Ian McNichol was temporarily suspended. He's back in now, of course. And they announced there would be a report. That became the Ford Report. And of course, when that report was published, nothing happened. So we heard a bit of a hullabaloo with regards to the party response regarding that stuff on the Ford Report. What you won't maybe have heard is that at the same time, the party management sought to pursue those it viewed as responsible for leaking those documents. Now, some of that has come to light because recently we have heard about hearings relating to those people and that case, uh, and huge sums of money are involved. 
The Guardian reports this. Labour has spent more than half a million pounds as part of its lawsuit against the former staffers accused of leaking an internal report on anti-Semitism. The Guardian understands. The party has spent at least £503,260 in its bitter battle with ex-staff members, including Jeremy Corbyn's former chief of staff, Carrie Murphy, and his former director of communications, Seamus Milne. That sum is said to relate only, now this is key, this is really key, only to the total costs accrued for a recent hearing. So this is for a single hearing, over £500,000, that involved a failed attempt to gain access to Murphy's private emails. The party has been refused permission to appeal. In total, the Labour Party could face a legal bill of between three and four million pounds. Half a million pounds for a single hearing. They won't be able to appeal. That is the definition of an L. The Guardian goes on to say this. Labour instigated the legal action against those accused of leaking the report in 2021, and it is understood that the substantive trial may not take place until the second half of 2024, again, this is a really extraordinary detail, possibly on the eve of a general election. A legal source with knowledge of the case said, quote, Labour will be facing a bill of several million by the time this saga ends, and a media fest airing Labour's dirty laundry just before or even during a general election. Extraordinary. With the trial expected to last at least two weeks, coupled with new revelations about the cost of the hearing, there are growing concerns among some in Labour that the lawsuit is racking up costs that could have been used for campaigning. Mike, the politics of this are pretty amazing. You know, you've got Labour trying to say to the electorate, say to the right-wing press, we're responsible with your money. We are going to not spend a penny more than the Conservatives. We'll have a kind of a form of fiscal austerity. You know, we'll have the public debt falling over a parliament. And yet here they are, the same organisation, allies of Keir Starmer at the top of the party, wasting half a million pounds on a single hearing. Do you think this is going to have long-term implications for Labour? Or is this just an insider story for people like you and me and our viewers here on YouTube? I think it depends on what the Conservatives do with it. I mean, this is one of those where the Conservatives have a clear open goal because Labour have tried to brand themselves under Starmer as this physically respons responsible party. You know, we're not going to, you know, waste the public's money. We're going to be very responsible. And that's why we've seen them roll back on some of the commitments, right? So the idea is that you know, we're going to roll back on some of our progressive spending commitments because we want to be seen as responsible. We want to be seen as a party you can trust when it comes to you know, finances. So when it comes to kind of loads of progressive policy that we would want on the left when it comes to the environment and other issues, Labour is saying, no, 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 we want to be responsible. But this is anything but responsible. And it says a lot about, you know, where Keir Starmer's priorities lie. And, and even pro-Starmer members of the NEC are, are looking at this thinking, this is a bit weird. This is a, you know, political vendetta, I think it was described as by a pro-Starmer NEC member in the, in the Guardian piece. So, you know, people on his side of the party, you know, his allies are, are thinking about this and, and, and thinking this is bizarre you know approach to adopt and also the optics of this not just in terms of you know how labor branded themselves as this kind of financial financially responsible party economically savvy all of this jazz but also in terms of this you know dragging on to the eve of a, of a general election and we've been told aaron that labor are all about winning this election that's why we're going to see them roll back on commitments and we're going to see them pivots when they're in office but how is a party intent on winning an election 
you know, having this a court case of this nature drag onto the eve of a general election. If this is no way to do politics in terms of, you know, if you want to win an election and do well in an election, you don't want a case of this nature kind of dragging on, you know, right up until the point of an election. So also this makes no sense. And it kind of exposes the lies you've been told about key Islamist labor. You know, they want to be financially responsible and then here they are doing something that's not financially responsible at all. And you know, they want to be a, a party that's serious about winning, but yet this is a court case that could in some ways undermine the chances of winning an election because it's going to drag on to the eve of an election. So also it makes no sense. And, and, and it's just really, really baffling for, for Keir Starmer. Yeah, I think the idea of it being sort of vindictive vendetta is spot on. And and look, for now, and I think for now this is inside baseball, look, only The Guardian are reporting on it. I'm surprised the Daily Mail and, and GB News and, and those kinds of people aren't all over it too, because this is manna from heaven for the Conservatives. But it's this kind of story. All you need in a general election campaign is three or four stories like this to discredit Labour's hard-won, I think that's inarguable, veneer of, of fiscal responsibility and credibility. You need three or four stories like this. Cast your mind back to 2015, Ed Miliband. What did Tory voters say about Ed Miliband? He betrayed his brother. Uh, he's in the pocket of Alex Salmond. Two or three memes really discredited that man as a serious political figure. And look, I personally think Labour are bolt onto a majority right now, but this is the definition of an unforced error. This doesn't need to happen. I think even as you say, Mike, allies of Starmer right now are probably thinking, we don't need to do this, just settle. But I think because this has been led on by David Evans, the G General Secretary of the Labour Party, a close ally of Keir Starmer on the Labour right, and the likes of Luke Akehurst and Morgan McSweeney, this coterie of Labour right figures heavily influenced by Peter Mandelson, I don't think it's going away. I think if they had any smarts about them, they would, uh, they would just basically cut their losses. Um, the Guardian does imply that the potential bill for this to the Labour Party could reach £4 million. But I want to bring up a story that we published over at NavarroMedia.com earlier this year. I have to recommend that. This was written by Rivka Brown at the turn of the year in January uh, 2023. Will a vindictive Labour Party bankrupt itself suing the alleged leakers? They've already spent a bomb. We covered the story a long time before Legacy Media. That shouldn't be a real surprise to our, to our audience on YouTube and, of course, listening uh, to this as a podcast later on. I, I think it's pretty obvious this won't bankrupt Labour, uh, but losing £4 million in a legal case is really the definition of, like I said, unforced error. And importantly, uh, the ICO and Martin Ford have both said there's no smoking gun with regards to who is responsible. So if the ICO, the Information, uh, Information Commissioner's Office, who are, you know, they, they know a thing or two about data breaches, and the King's Council, if they're saying they can't find a smoking gun, you really have to ask who is Labour getting advice from in regards to pursuing this case. Uh, of course, it's always very easy to uh, spend other people's money. Mike, you know, like I say, this could be one of several stories which presents a problem for Labour in 2024. Are there any other enforced errors you think that right now, even people on the Labour right might be thinking, we don't really need to do this? You know, maybe the, some of the, the wealth tax stuff might also be an unforced error for Labour. And I, and I just think for Labour now, when you know, I think there, there's probably a feeling amongst people on the Labour right and Labour in general that they're on course to win an election. And when you're in that position, I don't think you, sh you should be complacent. And I think Starmer risks giving off this idea of, well, actually, I can get away with whatever I want by kind of pursuing this case and, and by, 
you know, making this a thing that he's willing to take into the, you know, the eve of a general election. So, yeah, I think there are quite a few things in terms of, you know, Labour being a bit braver on, on some issues, you know, even even things like migration. I think if this is something that Labour, I think, and, and even some people on the Labour right can argue that Labour should be a bit braver when it comes to migration, when it comes to, you know, challenging the Conservatives on things like, you know, housing, which we're going to talk about later, you know, housing children in, in hotels, you know, asylum-seeking children in hotels. You know, this is something that is a violation of the law. The governments are currently doing that. And, you know, Labour could easily come down and say, you know, Labour, you know, the Conservatives are breaking the law, this is what we would do instead and kind of presenting this kind of progressive vision for the, na- for the nation. So I think, you know, in general, the way Labour operates, given that they have, you know, the polling data, you know, they have the kind of, the mood music suggests that they're going to win a, 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 a majority of some description at a general election. I think a lot of people on the Labour right actually might want Starmer in general to be a bit bolder rather than adopt this kind of like risk-averse approach. And, you know, in, in the ways in which he's taking risks, like pursuing his court case, making zero, zero sense. So like he's taking risks that are stupid and, you know, being risk-averse in situations where he doesn't need to be risk-averse. And it kind of makes no sense. I think that's hugely important. I think, you know, it's 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 tempting to look at something like Starmer as sort of this rational calculating actor. But I think as well, you said wealth taxes. I have to say on the cap on on um, on two children and benefits, I, I, I think that is a real misstep by Labour. We do have a response uh, from uh, one of the other, Paul Hudson with £5 in the Super Chat. Thank you, Paul. Bankrupt is on the cards for Labour. Can't say I'll be upset. Starmer is a liar and doesn't deserve to lead. He can't be trusted. Well, I agree with you on the trusted aspect of that, Paul, but they have made a significant amount of money. Important to say, not more than was being made under Jeremy Corbyn, but they've they've covered the losses basically from the loss of members since 2019. There is an interesting Guardian quote here too, which I didn't mention earlier on. Um, uh, which is what Mike was referring to. But I'll, I'll give the quote. A member of the ruling NEC from the Prostum wing said, and here's the quote, questioning this monumental waste of members and affiliates' money pursuing what appears to be a pointless political vendetta. Their words, not mine. Maybe we share a thing or two with some people on the Labour right. I'd like to think that we don't disagree on absolutely everything. Next story. Schools across England are facing potential closure as a result of potentially unstable concrete identified in their buildings. At least 156 schools in England are known to be affected, but that number could grow this weekend with more checks taking place. Currently, 24 schools have been told to close. Over 100 more have been told to partially close their buildings. The reason why is that all of these buildings contain what's called RAAC rack, reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete. It's a specific kind of concrete. It looks a little bit like an aero. Uh, and fears over possible sudden collapses have caused the government to close all school buildings that contain rack just as children are about to return for the new school term. Now, importantly, the government won't say precisely how many schools are affected. It could be a significant number. On ITV, this was Schools Minister Nick Gibb explaining the situation. We're talking about 156 schools, perhaps a few more, but out of 22,500 schools uh, in the system. And we, as I said, we know more about our school estate than any other government in the world. That perhaps a few more is important. Are there, could there be some schools that have rack that you don't know about because they haven't filled out the questionnaires and, well, and told you what they've got? The, the vast majority of those questionnaires have been returned. And, and, and when they are returned, the vast majority do not have rack. This is a, is a continuing process. 
There are some still to do. And when we get how that many, information... How many are well, still to there's, do? there's still some to do. And when we get that information, uh, we send in surveyors and uh, they conduct this. But I mean, it, is it a large number? Because there will be parents out there thinking, is my school one of the ones that is still to be checked? They can be absolutely assured that the, the advice that schools have, we've been giving schools advice about RAC since 2018. They know how to identify RAC and they, and they have a very clear advice about how to manage RAC safely. We are going one step further and saying where we have identified RAC, uh, we want to take out of use, just for a precautionary measure, uh, RAC that is, con is considered in good condition, uh, as well as RAC that's con con considered to be uh, in, a, in poor condition to make sure that children are safe. But just, just to be absolutely clear, are there some schools who have not even told you whether or not they might have RAC and therefore you simply don't know? Well, as I said, there's a vast majority of, of these returns have come in. There are some that have not and we would urge them to send those back in. But even when they come in, the vast majority confirm no RAC. Now, this is a really significant problem because in 2018, degrading rack caused the collapse of a school roof in Kent. No uh, light matter at the time. The Department for Education decided to close schools after they were told this summer that several buildings, including schools, had recently uh, given way, quote, without warning. That's the situation we're facing right now. As I've said, the government still hasn't told the public precisely which schools are at risk. And obviously, if you have kids in school, uh, primary or secondary, that is going to be playing on your mind. And yet, apparently, the government doesn't want to give you peace of mind in relation to that. That led to this exchange with Gibb this morning on Good Morning Britain. You did you not uh, make the following pledge, um, that you were going to publish information about at-risk properties uh, before uh, the Parliament summer recess. I have a listen to yourself speaking uh, in Parliament and help us understand what you meant by it. I can give a commitment that we will publish as soon as possible, and certainly before the summer recess. And that hasn't happened, has it? Well, we will publish. Look, this, is the, this issue is new. It, it emerged over the summer. Well, since you, sorry to interrupt, but you made, yeah. you made a commitment there to publish this, didn't you? Certainly before the recess, you said, and that hasn't been published. Well, this is, well th that was about something else, because... This is only an issue that's emerged over the summer. So over the summer, we, as I said, there were some instances where rack that we had thought was safe is no longer so. And so we took a decision over the summer. It's a very big decision to take. Well, sorry, that, that, that report, Minister, that report included rack. It was it the was... condition of schools, right. wasn't it, that report dealt with? So you thought it was safe and it's no longer safe. Which, correct. Um, right, correct. so when you made that parliamentary statement, which was, was it correct or incorrect? Well, I, I can't remember what that particular thing is about, but, but what this is about... It was about, about RAC, Minister. It was well, about RAC. It's what you said. Right. I'm not putting words in your right. mouth. Look we, will look, we will publish the names of all the schools. Extraordinary in so much as Gibb is saying there that we didn't realise there was a problem on this front until this summer. But as I said a few moments ago, in Kent, a school had its roof collapse five years ago because of this stuff. Mike... 
Have you heard of Rack before this uh, before this week? I mean, it, it strikes me as quite an obvious thing to happen or to do is that if there is a material responsible for the collapse of a roof in a school, you then proceed to ask how many schools are affected? Will this happen again? And what do we need to do to either avert that from happening or how do we respond when it happens? Those don't appear to be the kinds of questions that the government asked. And now as a result, we're looking at, you know, dozens, if not potentially hundreds of schools closing over the coming weeks? Well, this is not a new problem at all. I think when it comes to RAC, you know, it was used to build lots of public buildings from the 1950s, I think, up to the 1970s. You know, we, we began to kind of find out in the 1990s that you know, lots of these buildings have a, a cycle of about 30 years before they started, it starts to crumble. So this isn't actually new. And, and, and you know, Gordon Brown's kind of Labour governments were aware of this in, in, in the kind of 2010s when you know he launched this kind of school renovation project in the 2010s now this project was obviously quickly abandoned by the incoming conservatives under david cameron under the guise of austerity and tough decisions i remember kind of you know reading some stuff back you know the moon music in some of the right-wing press was you know well bravo to david cameron making these bold decisions and you know failing to invest in infrastructure was a brave decision by by david cameron but you now look down the line you know 13 years down the line you know schools haven't been renovated on top of that, we've seen schools funding cuts by 50% in some cases. And now we're in a position now where schools are quite literally crumbling to the point where they have to close down at such short notice. So it's not a new problem. And actually in 2017, the government's, you know, commissioned some reports into finding out more about school buildings. And, you know, that wasn't kind of carried out to the urgency required. So the governments have known about this problem for quite some time, but have just ignored it. And, and it kind of speaks to the incompetence that defines this government and has defined this government for its entirety of time in service. And, you know, they're failing to provide a service in many ways to young people now, because now young people are going to bear the brunt of their incompetence. They're going to be robbed the chance to, you know, enter the school year, some of them, and, and start the school year properly. You know, and, and that's a real, real shame, especially when you think about, you know, COVID and, and how, unfortunately, you know, students are robbed of a chance of interacting with one another in classrooms. You're now having kind of government incompetence, years and years of incompetence, years and years of failing to address an issue, and an issue that they were aware of. We're now having that, you know, young, young children, especially entering, you know, primary school, secondary school for the first time, are going to have really weird experience. So this is not cool at all. And I think it speaks to the idea of how the Conservatives continue to operate as a government. So when it comes to issues like the climate crisis, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to kick that down the road for as long as possible. And then eventually, you know, when it's almost too late, you know, then we're going to just try, you know, you know, move and, and, and you know, do the things we should have done 10 years ago. We're going to you know, be forced into action when it's too late. So also this is not surprising to me because this government have, you know, for, and, I, and I, when I say this government, I'm speaking about the Conservatives under Cameron and, and beyond, have... In, in many ways, shown such staggering levels of incompetence and cruelty and you know, austerity and, and even outsourcing as well, which is something that Ash spoke about, I uh, think, on Twitter and how that's kind of created this crisis in many ways as well. All of these different issues have, have led to where we are today, where you know our public infrastructure is, is crumbling. And I think the final point I'd make is that we don't invest enough in our public services, and that's something that we on the left always bang on about. But you know, we have so not just schools, we have you know our public infrastructure at the moment is is, is struggling. You know, it's, Britain is in many ways crumbling at the moment, and if this, is, this is down to a lack of investment in our public services. So I think it's important that as a as a as a democracy, as as a nation of our size and 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 quote unquote prestige, we should be investing in our public services because you know we we simply deserve deserve better. So, yeah, I, I'm really wound up by this story just because of the implications it's going to have on children. And the Conservatives will wonder why young people don't vote for the Conservatives. Well, if you don't, you know, 
put 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 place in put in place policies that are going to help you know young people when it comes to having the infrastructure to be in a classroom. But of course, you know, young people grow up disgruntled with the conservatives and disgruntled with how the world operates and 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 they and they feel like they're being, you know, on the short end of things all the time. Yeah, I think it's such an important point you make around also the coalition scrapping what I think at the time was a five billion pound project to to retrofit and refurbish schools across the country. It was a, a hallmark policy under the Gordon Brown uh, Labour government from 2007-2010. Uh, you know, I don't think it really got going. And of course, that then gets um, kneecapped by, I believe Michael Gove was at education at the time, but by the, by the Cameron Osborne Clegg government. And I think it's such a valuable insight you offer there, Mike, which is even now in 2023, we're finding new costs when it comes to the policy of austerity. And I suspect we'll be finding new costs in, in 2030 and 2035. You cannot fail to invest in basic infrastructure for the best part of 15 years. Lots of things will start to break down very, very quickly. On the point of whether or not um, rack itself is a risky material, Professor of Engineering Chris Goodyear gave this interview to Sky News. Is there something inherently wrong with rack concrete, i.e. does every building that has it uh, need to have it removed or, or can it be established that, you know, the integrity of it is good? No, not at all. The, the principle is fine and it's still manufactured in hundreds and thousands of factories around the world. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of structures all around the world made of rack and they're, they're doing fine. So it's not it's not a inherently bad system or type of material it's probably more akin to say burning with timber uh we you know we built for timber for hundreds and thousands of years but we do know we need to look after it a bit uh and not leave it out in the weather and not overload it because if you overload it too much it can bend and start to crack so so it's perfectly fine to burn with but we do need to look after it and this is part of the problem it's not always been looked after well over say 40 50 years we've had turbulent weather climate change very aggressive climates on some of the buildings and we're now using uh, many of the buildings differently than we are when we first designed them 40 or 50 years ago so as you can gather there there are major problems with regards to the use of rack the schools affected at the moment are introducing temporary measures uh, including propping up ceilings with steel beams and relocating pupils to alternative Accommodation, really extraordinary. On LBC, Nick Gibb, yes, him again, was asked about the safety of using steel beams to prop up ceilings in classrooms. In all honesty, Nick, would you be happy with your nieces and nephews sitting in a classroom under a propped-up RSJ? Which is a yes, it is, it is. Yes, it is good because we're being very, very. You'd be happy for uh, your nieces uh, and nephews uh, yeah, to so sit I, in a classroom under a ceiling held up by a steel girder on props. Yes, because we're taking a very precautionary approach. Uh, some say we're being overcautious in, in dealing with this. Well, but do. the advice is that you can prop up these, these, uh, these right. beams. Where they are in a more dangerous condition, of course, we take that room out okay. of this altogether. And that's the work that's happening with a caseworker, with support from the department in those 156 schools. And we continue to work to identify uh, throughout the, the school system. There's no... There's no country in the world right. where you can be as assured as in this country uh, that you have a government that is on top of this issue and is doing everything to identify where RAC is and to take action when we think it is unsafe for pupils. Safety of pupils and staff is our prime concern. Incredible. They're laughing about kids being in danger at school. I mean, we know they're in danger because they're introducing steel 
steel beams to stop the roof falling on them. Apparently, this is a laughing matter. On Sky News Shadow, Justice Secretary Steve Reid was asked for his reaction to the school closures. The school's minister, Nick Gibb, uh, when I spoke to him, was keen to, to reassure people that the vast majority of schools are not affected. He said that it's important that people know uh, that schools are safe, uh, that uh, Child safety is their priority as well. They say they've been working on this in great detail. There'll be teams of people making sure that they minimise the disruption. Are you reassured at all about the action that's being taken now? Well, we know that Nick, Job, Nick Gibb hasn't been doing his job. Otherwise, they wouldn't be taking action days before the start of term that they should have taken at the beginning of the school holidays, if not five years ago, after that school in Gravesend collapsed. But it was Nick Gibb, who was the education minister, who took the decision when the Conservatives came to power to cancel Labour's school rebuilding programme that would have dealt with these problems over a much longer period of time through proper planned maintenance work and never put anything else in, in place for it instead. And the truth of it is, so much of our public estate is crumbling after 13 years of Conservative failure, uh, frankly. But you can't deliver first-rate education in second-rate buildings and you can't deliver any education in a building that collapses. Interesting. And it was a really interesting comment that came from somebody. It wasn't a super chat, but they said, didn't the Romans invent concrete? Um, the uh, the Colosseum still seems in decent uh, nick. Very true. Also, apparently, it's a kind of concrete, which only until recently, nobody quite understood because it actually gets stronger uh, the more stress that is placed on it. Next story. A UN review of the UK's treatment of disabled people took place in Geneva this week. But remarkably, the government didn't even bother to turn up. It's another episode of the Tory government's callous treatment of disabled people in this country. In 2016, a UN report, a UN report found grave violations of disability rights in the UK following austerity. It cited the following changes to housing benefits and the personal independence payment, otherwise called PIP, stricter social care criteria, and ending the independent living fund. It said that all of these, quote, hindered disabled people's rights to live independently and be included in the community. These are some of the other findings as reported by the BBC at the time. Other findings include uh, disabled people were regularly portrayed negatively as dependent or making a living out of benefits, committing fraud as benefit claimants being lazy or putting a burden on taxpayers. Uh, sanctions for some employment and support allowance claimants increased significantly from 2012-14 and had been disproportionately applied. The so-called bedroom tax and social housing size criteria quite failed to recognize the specific living arrangements disabled people require. Assessments did take did not take into account rather the quote support persons with disabilities need to perform a job or the complex nature of some impairments and conditions. And then finally, some work schemes had no visible impact in decreasing unemployment. That is extraordinary. Let me repeat that again. Some work schemes had, quote, no visible impact in decreasing unemployment among disabled people. And some who accessed other programs experienced reductions in support or loss of employment. So there may even have been a net negative impact of those policies in terms of um, disabled people being able to work. The absolute opposite of what was being promised, offered uh, by the austerity conservative government at the time. That 2016 report also made 11 recommendations, and this week's UN hearing was to assess the government's progress against that, um, that 2016 report as a, as a sort of benchmark. 
Before the hearing, the EHRC submitted their evidence and sent this letter to Equalities Minister Kemi Badnock. Our report assesses progress against the 11 inquiry recommendations and analyzes government action and context related to disability rights since 2016. Our assessments show that despite some progress in certain areas, there has been limited or no progress against many recommendations. It is therefore disappointing that the UK government has postponed its participation in this essential process until the committee's March 2024 session, delaying the outcome of the follow-up. A UK deaf and disabled people's organisation submitted their own 340-page report to the UN. It said this, 7.2 million people in households with a disabled member are living in poverty. 7.2 million. Extraordinary. This accounts for half of all UK poverty. Deaf or disabled people, DDP, are almost three times as likely to live in material deprivation than the rest of the population. Substantial numbers of DDP have lost income through the replacement of Disability Living Allowance, DLA, with Personal Independence Payment, PIP. Figures published in June 2018 show that since the rollout of PIP, 381,640 disabled people who previously received DLA have been turned down for the new benefit upon reassessment. Uh, there's another follow-up here. Of 3,500 survey respondents, 13% said they had attempted suicide as a result of interacting with the Department of Work and Pensions. I mean, extraordinary. A third said it caused them to plan suicide. Uh, so I suppose you could uh, say that's, that's not ideational, that's active. Well, 61% said the way the system is implemented led them to have suicidal thoughts, which is suicidal ideation. Disabled people were overrepresented among COVID-related deaths, even accounting for age and health factors. Analysis identifies poverty as a key factor within this, as well as care home residency. Official figures record that disabled people accounted for nearly 60% of COVID-related deaths. The true proportion is likely to be higher. Really extraordinary stuff. Um, and building on all of that, earlier today I spoke to disabilities activist Ellen Clifford about the situation for deaf and disabled people in 2023. The reality of the situation, it's definitely deteriorated considerably since 2016. And 2016 was the finding of grave and systematic violations of disabled people's rights due to austerity and welfare reform that was, they were the findings of an unprecedented investigation by the United Nations Disability Committee. But we've just seen things get worse and worse as the cuts have deepened. The situation we're now seeing, and this is post-COVID, where a disproportionate number of disabled people died, being most at risk, but also being denied life-saving treatment. And now we've got the cost of living crisis. And again, that disproportionately impacts on disabled people. But I think one of the biggest things that we needed to talk to the United Nations about this week was the dangers that are inherent in the Tories' new health and disability white paper and what those proposals uh, are going to mean for us. Were you surprised that the, the government didn't even bother to attend that UN hearing? I actually wasn't surprised because if you look at their policy and the impact on disabled people since March, since the spring uh, back to work budget, what they've done is so indefensible publicly, but also contravenes a number of the recommendations that the UN committee 
made in 2016. Every year since 2016, they've had to submit a report to the United Nations Disability Committee saying how they're getting on with implementing the recommendations. But it's one thing to do that in writing where you can talk about things they've done without the impact or uh, mention policies that actually have nothing to do with disability, really. But when you're actually in front of the committee being put those questions in person, it's much harder to hide between spin and smoke and mirrors. So I really didn't think that that they would. I didn't realise that they would ask for a postponement, actually. And I think that's their kind of diplomatic way of trying to get out of it without actually uh, showing the level of contempt for the UN that that would uh, that it would mean if they just, you know, didn't turn up at all. But they asked for a postponement until March. And what was their reasoning for, for the postponement? Did they say they they couldn't make it because of extenuating circumstances or was it just trying to kick it into the long grass? They're not ready. They weren't ready. They needed more time to prepare was what they said. And the response that the Disability Committee gave them was that deaf and disabled people's organisations and the Equality and Human Rights Commissions for the Four Nations had all found time given our overstretched capacity and lack of resources. We'd all managed to find time to do the written submissions. And we'd already booked flights that were, you know, non-refundable by the, the point at which they said, oh, sorry, we need more time to prepare. And as far as I understand, there's never been an impact assessment in this country with regards to the impact of austerity on deaf and disabled people. Why do you think that is? So that was one of the, the big recommendations from the 2016 special inquiry was that there should be a cumulative impact assessment carried out and the Treasury has continued to say that the distributional analyses they provide are sufficient. In 2018, the Equality and Human Rights Commission published their own cumulative impact assessment. And obviously that uh, with, with more limited resources than the government would have if they if they did one. Um, but they found that there was a um, disproportionate impact on a number of groups, including disabled people, also people from some minority ethnic and racialized communities and also lone parents. The biggest hit were lone parents who were disabled with disabled children. And has the government ever given an explanation for the absence of a impact assessment? They used to say it wasn't feasible until the EHRC did theirs. After that, they stopped saying that. They just said that, that what they provide now is, is enough. But in terms of, of data, the government has stopped at least publishing a lot of the data that we actually use to trigger the special inquiry. Um, things like the impact of sanctions on disabled people, that data is no longer available. So it makes it much harder to evidence what is happening under universal credit sanction statistics for example aren't disaggregated by disability and that's one of our particular concerns is that with the ramping up of sanctions as we've seen since uh, the, the the budget but also the proposals in the white paper that I mentioned so under those proposals what's going to happen is that there will no longer be any groups uh, of disabled people on out of work benefits who are uh, exempt from sanctions and conditionality. The changes are going to mean that everyone, however ill, uh, whatever the barriers to employment that you face, everyone will be uh, subject con to conditionality and it will be up to individual work coaches to determine how fit for work or otherwise 
you are. And of course, what we see is that the more things like that are at the discretion of individual work coaches, the more discrimination we see because work coaches can't possibly be trained in understanding the, the full range of different impairments and disabilities um, that, that claimants have and they just don't have that understanding but also they're not paid anywhere near the amount that the medical professionals who currently do those uh those out of work benefit assessments they don't have that level of training or professionalism and they're not paid that much what are the kind of key demands from deepak in regards to immediate changes coming down the line i understand there's a much broader critique of of austerity and government policy um, relating to deaf and disabled people but in particular, with regards to say, the next six to 12 months without there being a general election or a change of government, what, what key policy issues are you, are you looking to kind of influence? We want the white paper scrapped in its entirety. The government is going to have to legislate for that. It would have to be in a different parliament, but we know that they've already started drafting the legislation for that. And we don't trust Labour not to just run with it if they came in. Um, just want the whole of that disability health uh, uh, sorry, health and disability white paper, just want all of that scrapped. The other major issue is social care support for disabled people living in the community and with local authorities going bankrupt. We are just seeing human rights violations on just an unbelievable scale. Um, so we just desperately need more funding for the social care support system. But longer term, we want the, the, the whole system of what we call it independent living support. So support for people that, that fits around their whole lives to be able to participate in society the same as other people. Uh, we want a whole different system that's separate from the NHS and that upholds disabled people's rights to live in the community. That was Ellen Clifford speaking to me earlier on today. By the way, Ellen wrote a wonderful book, really informative, The War on Disabled People, I believe published by Zed Books. Much recommended. Mike, uh, what do you make of this story? I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that you have, you know, the UN um, is asking for the government to respond to quite serious problems. There's a benchmark for them to report on, and they won't even turn up. And they're making all manner of excuses as to why they can't. I mean, Obviously, the question answers itself, but that, that's quite a jaw-dropping revelation, isn't it? It is, and it shows the neglect that this government have for some of the most marginalised in our society, whether it's minorities, whether it's disabled people. You know, when it comes to challenging the issues that face these communities, it's low on the government's list of priorities, and yet this is a government that claimed to be, you know, ruling in the interests of Britain, and, you know, they care for, the, for everyone in this country, and it's about you know, building, building society, but... None of that's reflected in any direction. So I, I ultimately just think this reveals the way in which disabled people have been marginalised by this government in terms of their interests. When it comes to, we spoke about public infrastructure in this country crumbling. I often have a discussion with my, with my, my girlfriend about how, you know, when you look across some of our public infrastructure in this country, so much of it is ill-fitted for, you know, lots, lots of disabled people. So even when I'm navigating around, around London, I see how, you know, in navigating a city like London as a disabled person has so many challenges. And I just feel like, you know, serious governments, you know, with, you know, looking at cities like London, which is, you know, supposedly one of the most developed cities in, in, the, in the world, you know, navigating that as a disabled person can be quite tricky. So you, you think about, you know, life as a disabled person's country and how, 
you know, it's, it shouldn't be as difficult as it is. It's just some of the challenges to say what people face. So I ultimately think this reveals lots of where the government's heart lies. And, you know, this is a government that doesn't rule with compassion or, or empathy or care. This is a government that is completely incompetent and callous. And that's the kind of ruling philosophy of this government. Yeah, I, I just quickly want to go over those numbers again, um, given what we subsequently heard from Ellen. 7.2 million people in households with a disabled member are living in poverty. 7.2 million. That's accounting for half of all poverty in the UK. And then further on in that special inquiry shadow report I mentioned earlier, of those 3,500 respondents, 13% said they had attempted suicide. So you've got people living in poverty, many of which are living in poverty as a direct result of changes in public policy over the last 15 years, and a significant chunk of them have attempted suicide. 61% have thought about suicide. They've had suicidal thoughts. We're coming on now to our final story. And this, again, is a really extraordinary story. It relates to um, child uh, images of a, of a sexual nature relating to children. So if you don't want to uh, watch the rest of this or listen, I'm, I'm imparting due warning. A listener and viewer discretion is advised. Yesterday, an extraordinary story was broken by the Morning Star. He was the front page. Cover-up claims as mayor partied with paedophile. Now, it's important to say the Morning Star, brilliant newspaper. Great reporting, by the way. If you only need to read two newspapers in this country, read the Morning Star and the Financial Times. Uh, it's important to say they broke this story. They got the scoop. Uh, but at the same time, my colleagues here at Navarra Media, Simon Charles and Rivka Brown, were working on the same story. We're going to get some detail on their reporting, but I want to be very clear. This was a Morning Star scoop. Before we go to, however, their reporting on this matter, I want to clarify the person at the center of this entire story, that same Mr. Tom Dewey. Now, Dewey was elected as a Labour councillor in 2022. He was seen as something of a fixer in the local party. He was viewed as being on the party right. He was very close with senior people in Hackney Labour. He was also a branch secretary in the constituency. And perhaps most revealing of all, he was even a housemate of the Labour mayor for Hackney, Phil Glanville. Rivka and Simon go on to write this in their report for Navarra Media. In the early hours of 29th of April, police raided the shared home of Glanville and Dewey, charging the latter with possessing indecent images of children. Early this month, Dewey was found guilty of multiple offences and given a suspended sentence. He received a £500 fine and 150 hours of community service. On the 5th of May, six days after his arrest, the right-wing Labour activist Dewey stood and was elected, this is after his arrest, as a councillor in Hackney. He resigned on 16th of May, two days after Hackney Council became aware of the charges. In July, Glanville told a town hall meeting, no action that I've ever taken as mayor has ever put the safeguarding of anyone in this council or in our community or beyond at risk. It's a big claim. We'll return to that in a moment. Before we do, I want to highlight the fact that Mr. Dewey was guilty of not just possessing, but also making images of of the of the most hardcore nature with regards to you know um child sexual images these are called class a category a images they're the most appalling things imaginable and he gets a small fine community service and i believe a suspended sentence now you might be a prison abolition abolitionist or whatever you might think well prison's not going to be a disincentive for these kinds of people or 
And that, those, those are all reasonable points. But I do find it absolutely extraordinary that somebody who stole a bottle of water during the London riots gets six months, and yet somebody in possession and who made grotesque images of children, who is a sexual predator, escapes prison. Frank, uh, Frank Fernie, who in the student protest of 2011 got a year for throwing a stick at the police, uh, is punished so much more harshly than Tom Dewey. Extraordinary. In relation to Mr. Glanville, returning back to him, the mayor for Hackney, after yesterday's story broke, we had this image really front and centre in that morning star scoop. As you can see, uh, most of the faces are blurred out. On the left, the, the person with the glasses is uh, Tom Dewey. On the right is Phil Glanville. Now, this image is from the 14th of May, and this is particularly important. Because, as has already been mentioned, the police raided Tom Dewey's home, which he shares with Glanville on the 29th of April. Now, Mr. Glanville says he knew nothing about this. He said, I had no idea that this person, uh, you know, had been subject to a raid or had been arrested, was being charged. I had no idea. You, you lived in the same home together. Now, that's not conclusive evidence. Maybe, maybe I don't know, by an extraordinary fortuitous set of circumstances and coincidence. He had no idea. He was lied to. He happened to be out. The police came again. He happened to be out. He was fed a line by Mr. Dewey in regards to why he was mess missing potentially for long periods of time. Maybe. But it does seem pretty extraordinary that somebody's house can be raided. You're their housemate and you have absolutely no idea of what's happening. Now, as I say, those are two important dates, 29th of April and the 14th of May. Um, Glanville has since been suspended by the Labour Party. It looks like he'll be under investigation. That's because his story doesn't add up. This is a statement shared with Navarra Media where Glanville said this, being with Tom Dewey at all on the 14th of May, that was the evening of the Eurovision contest, was clearly an error of judgment for which I wholeheartedly apologise. I was told of his arrest, this is Mr Dewey, but not the full extent of the charges in a brief discussion with the council chief executive the same day. So 14th of May is the, is the very first day that anybody in Hackney Council knows anything about this. And Mr. Glamble is saying he's in that category of people. I shouldn't have been at the event in which we were photographed, which is later that evening, but I did so as I feared to cancel the event or not attend myself, may alert Tom to what I knew during what I understood to be a live criminal case. This does not alter the fact I had no involvement in the case. Nobody is claiming that all and shouldn't deter from the actions included moving out of the house the following day, as well as others I have taken since his resignation and conviction, which I've made clear in previous statements. Now, if we could just bring that picture back up, um, Fox, uh, which was on the original Morningstar uh, front page, that would be good. Because what Mr. Glanville is saying is he, he went to this event because he didn't want to let on. Well, he, he seems to be the one that's taking the picture. I mean, I could be wrong, but it seems that he's taking a group selfie and he's smiling. No, I could be wrong. So Glanville lived with Mr. Dewey for two weeks after their property was raided and he knew nothing. And then the evening he was told about what had happened, which are pretty extraordinary offenses, he takes a selfie. Mike, what do you make of this? I mean... You, you try and be charitable with people because obviously it's 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 horrible if somebody's caught in something which their housemate is guilty of. It's it's horrific, obviously. 
But this person has an extraordinarily senior position in the local Labour Party, obviously safeguarding issues with regards to young people. Um, as I've said, Dewey's arrested on the 29th. He's not elected. I, I think, you know, he doesn't become a, um, a councillor until I think maybe, is it the is it the 11th? It's the early weeks of May. So there's this big period between him being arrested, then he's elected, and then he's a councillor, and nothing happens with regards to the Hackney mayor, who's also his housemate and a fellow Labour member. I mean, this seems pretty extraordinary. And I wasn't surprised when the BBC covered this after it was broken by uh, the Morning Star. What do you make of it? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. I think the first thing to say is, you know, hats off to the Morning Star and to Rivka and Simon for their kind of work on this story, because it's a, I think a hugely important story and slightly disturbing story. I think, you know, ultimately the mayor's position at this current moment in time to me is, is untenable. You know, I think he's been, been found wanting in terms of his word. And I, I just find so much of his story disturbing. You know, you spoke earlier about sentences given to, to those who you know, stole bottles of water in the London riots versus sentence given to Dewey. And I think that's a really important point to make here. And look, you can have this point about prison abolition and I, and I kind of get that. But, you know, when we're talking about these sentences being handed out to these different different offences. You know, this is a huge failing, I think. You know, you know, how can someone who's stolen a bottle of water, you know, face a harsh sentence to someone who's, you know, guilty of what Dewey's been guilty of. So I think I've actually found that part of the story quite hard to stomach and it suggests a real failing of our criminal justice system. This kind of reveals, you know, I think, I think ultimately Labour needs to act as a level of urgency at the moment because this is, yeah, for me, his position is just completely untenable at this moment in time. Yeah, just to, to reiterate the, the the dates, he's arrested on the 29th uh, when the house is raided and he's elected six days after the arrest as a councillor in, in Hackney. Uh, so he would have been canvassing with people, potentially even children, minors, having been arrested. There's a major safeguarding issue there. I, I personally agree with you, uh, Mike. Um, I, I don't see really how Phil Glanville's um, position is tenable. Most remarkably of all, actually, on this story, and I have to say this, is that the Labour Party didn't comment to either, either the Morning Star or to Navarra Media. I think that is absolutely extraordinary. And frankly, it's sickening when you have a story of this magnitude and young people's potential safety has been put at risk. The idea that, oh, we're not going to talk to Navarra Media or the Morning Star because they're on the left. Sometimes some stories are more important than that. Um, but again, like you say, Mike, uh, well done to the Morning Star for breaking this really, really extraordinary story. I think there could be a lot further to go on it. And I think there's a lot of digging to be done. Well done again to uh, Rivka and Simon because great reporting isn't easy. On that note, if you want to help us do more of that kind of work, original investigation and reporting, go to environment.com forward slash support. Help us build a new media for different politics. I may be in my living room uh, this evening, but often we are in our fantastic studio in London every night, bringing you the stories of that matter. I said at the top of the show, I wouldn't be, uh, I would be rather covering the story about Theresa May and how she said sorry. Maybe we can put that one on ice until Monday. Mike, you've been great. It's been wonderful. It's been great. The B team back in action. Hopefully we'll be back in action um, in a not too distant future. Well, I hope so too. Um, I hope I'm back in the studio as well. I, I would have I walked through walls. But you know what? 
the RMT and ASLEF are stronger than walls, it turns out. Um, and thanks, everyone, for watching this evening's show. Uh, we'll be back on Monday from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.